Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview Audrey Beard and Sonia Solomon, two representatives from the Coalition for Critical Technology. Audrey Beard, whose pronouns are they and she, is a critical AI researcher who explores the politics of artificial intelligence systems from the perceptron to ResNet, and from the researcher to society. She's especially concerned about conceptions of ethics in the development of AI as socio-technical systems, as well as in classrooms, boardrooms, conference venues, and developers' offices. This year, they earned their master's in computer science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Sonia Solomon, whose pronouns are she and her, works on the politics of media and technology, including the history of digital platforms, polarization, and on fair and accountable governance of technology. She is currently the research director of the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy at McGill's Max Bell School of Public Policy. Sonia is finishing her PhD at the Department of Communication Studies at McGill University. Audrey and Sonia co-founded the Coalition for Critical Technology, along with N.M. Amadeo, Chelsea Barabas, Theo Dreyer, and Beth Semmel. The mission of the Coalition for Critical Technology is to work towards justice by resisting technologies that exacerbate inequality, reinforce racism, and support the carceral state. A few of the topics that we cover in this interview include, what is the Coalition for Critical Technology? What is the tech-to-prison pipeline? What should you know about algorithms that are being used in law enforcement contexts? How has academia historically facilitated systemic oppression through technology? Now, before we share the interview, we wanted to set the scene and say a bit about why the case study we cover here with Audrey and Sonia is so important. On May 5th, 2020, a group of researchers out of Harrisburg University published a press release about a paper they wrote titled, A Deep Neural Network Model to Predict Criminality Using Image Processing. In their press release, the authors reported that the research was going to appear in the Springer Nature Research Book series titled, Transactions on Computational Science and Computational Intelligence. Now, fast forward to June 23rd. Dylan and I logged into our Twitter account and saw hundreds of people in the AI ethics community liking, retweeting, and sharing a tweet from a group called the Coalition for Critical Technology. The tweet said, quote, sign our letter to urge all publishers to refrain from feeding the hashtag tech to prison pipeline with physiognomy 2.0, end quote. The letter mentioned in the tweet linked to a Medium article addressed to Springer, asking them to rescind the paper from their upcoming publication and to stop publishing papers that contribute to the tech-to-prison pipeline. We'll unpack what that pipeline is during this interview. And so after Jess and I looked up again what physiognomy was, uh, we decided to support the cause and sign the letter. And then we also decided to get in touch with the authors of the letter to find out more about how we might be able to support their work to end the tech-to-prison pipeline and see if they would be willing to come on the show. We are so excited to share this interview with Audrey and Sonia, two representatives from the Coalition for Critical Technology, to tell us more about the mission of the coalition, the motivation behind its creation, and why all of this matters. 
We are here today with Audrey Beard and Sonia Solomon, who are founding members of the Coalition for Critical Technology. How are you both doing today? Doing great, thanks, how about you? Doing well, doing well. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, I was wondering, uh, before we get into your own personal stories and your journeys to being founding members of the Coalition, if you could talk a bit about what the Coalition for Critical Technology is for folks who may not be aware of you. Yeah, um, we, we actually joke about this all the time, uh, that this coalition is probably the best thing to come out of a rage tweet ever. Um, Theo Dreyer posted about this, uh, this now infamous paper, which we'll try to refrain from mentioning if possible, um, and, and called for an open letter in May to corral against some of the claims made in the paper, namely that um, AI can predict criminality solely from pictures of faces, and very specifically without racial bias. And we all just started writing in a big Google Doc, and a bunch of other scholars and activists joined in, and it kind of coalesced into this amorphous affinity group that we call the Coalition for Critical Technology. So now that we know what the coalition itself is, Audrey and Sonia, we would love to know how both of you happened upon this group or created this group and, and what caused both of you to feel motivated to or inspired, I guess, to, to join together. And Sonia, why don't we start off with you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as Audrey mentioned, it, it was just this kind of serendipitous moment on Twitter um, that, that evolved. But I think we all saw um, the paper and, and reacted to it in a similar way, which was that um, we were sort of tired from our own work in these respective spaces. We were tired of seeing this come up again and again. Um, and, and these claims being circulated and um, justified despite you know, repeated um, and long-standing work showing how harmful these claims are um, and how they perpetuate injustice and cause real-world harm. Um, and I think so that was really kind of the motivation to just start the work. And then it very quickly and, and sort of organically evolved from there into, into what it is. I came on, again, like all of this originated on Twitter. Uh, I for the past like year or so, I've been grappling with what, what it is that my field is doing for the world and to the world and how I am fitting into this. And I've been developing my own ideas about what, what we as computer scientists can do and what we as computer scientists have been doing. And I, I mean, this really popped up at a really fortuitous time. I was finishing up my master's degree and I was full of rage just as everybody else was in, in May. And I, uh, I had the opportunity to work with like some very brilliant people. And I was, I think, able to contribute in a meaningful way, which was uh, something that I was really searching for in that moment to, to, to work on something that felt like more than, more than what is typically considered computer science research, I guess. So let's get to specifics now. Uh, Dylan and I first heard about both of you and, and the coalition 
from this medium post abolish the tech to prison pipeline so could um, one of you begin by just kind of explaining what that letter was and um, maybe just a brief reminder of what Springer's original article was and then um, we can dive into how that helped form the coalition sure yeah so um, the letter the medium post you're referring to, uh, which is this this open letter that we wrote along with a number of other activists and tech workers and, and, and scholars along with the core um, coalition members that, that you named earlier. And the letter was really an, an attempt to kind of intervene in this circular incentive structure that really generates and, and maintains carceral technology and their logics. Um, so just to briefly pin back to the original paper, and, and I think it's important to just talk about kind of the uh, the more broad structural problems of, of claims like these instead of the individual um, metrics or, or details of, of the paper or its authors. Um, you know, the, the paper claimed to predict criminality solely from facial images um, with 80% accuracy and no racial bias. Um, And so publishing really serves um, a a key and crucial incentive here, which consists of, you know, naturalizing what has repeatedly been debunked um, and is decidedly racist kind of phrenology about predicting criminality um, and facial features of criminality and, and things like this. And I think this kind of naturalizing work itself sort of reinforces the demand for tools or technologies that can then you know, accurately or, or efficiently, um, and I'm doing air quotes right now on a, on a podcast, <laughs> um, that can efficiently or accurately predict criminality, right? So it's kind of an insidious cycle, and I think you can intervene in different parts of the, of the wheel, right? Um, you know, the development of, of carceral technology, um, the effect of certain surveillance uh, technologies on, on vulnerable populations, um, the political economy of, of carceral technology. We just happen to intervene in the publishing incentives because we see it as a core obligation of, of rigorous academic evaluation and, and academic work. Uh, totally. And if, if I can uh, elaborate on this a little bit and drill down into how this cycle plays out in machine learning or ML, uh, we're seeing recently this elevation of phrenology, which, as Sonia said, is a long debunked and racist pseudoscience. We're seeing it get elevated to the level of what we call ground truth, which is ML and data science practitioners' word for the knowledge that we base ML models off of. This, this practice of elevation naturalizes ne- this, these like neophrenological claims and reinforce the carceral logics and and ultimately entrench racism more deeply into not only our field, but society in general. Can we talk a little bit more about uh, what we mean by phrenology here? Because like in my, uh, coming from a sociologist background, I think of something very specific, which is the measurement of uh, skull shape in order to continue to further marginalize, especially in like the enlightenment period. And I'm curious about how that plays out in this uh, technology element. So if you could just unpack that like tech to prison pipeline um, a little bit more uh, specifically, that would be, I think, helpful. 
so we're we're sort of extending this this term of phrenology into the space of of AI and more specifically computer vision, which is what we're seeing more and more. Um, in in this case, we're seeing a sort of bioessentialism of race and sort of taking this this socially constructed notion of of race and and of criminality and connecting them to very explicitly together in through the fields of computer vision, data science, machine learning. And I would I would also extend this this notion of like neophrenology to to <laughs> Um, other sorts of biometric data. You know, y'all might have seen on Twitter a few days ago, there was a, there was a, a sort of proposal that was, that was made, made famous coming out of Indiana that seeks to uh, quantify the chances of recidivism based on things like heart rate and, and cortisol levels and, and these other, these other like biological factors uh, that that really serve more than anything to to make criminality a sort of biological trait, um, which of course, from a from a scientific perspective, from a machine learning perspective, and from a sociological perspective, is really flawed and really problematic because the the notion of criminality is socially constructed. It's something that. Um, doesn't exist naturally. Um, it is it is contingent on societal norms, and it's contingent on um, it's contingent on laws, and all of these, of course, are, are are mediated through racism and mediated through imperialism and colonialism and xenophobia, and we're seeing this this really get enshrined and and lionized as sort of objective in in the fields of, of machine learning, AI, data science. I think just to expand on on the you know the category of criminality is itself racially biased uh, as Audrey just explained. So research of this of this nature and these kinds of accompanying claims to accuracy really rest on assumptions. Um, default assumptions about data regarding criminal arrests um, or conviction serving as kind of reliable or neutral indicators of, of underlying criminal activity. And yet, like several um, scholars have demonstrated that these records are far from neutral, right? They reflect historical court and arrest um, policies and practices of the criminal justice system and, and who police choose to arrest, um, how judges choose to rule which people are granted longer or more lenient sentences, right? So um, that that's why we, in the letter, we really try to intervene in these like ground truth uh, claims rather than, is this a case of bad data, like dirty data? Is this a case of bad actors? Um, is this intentional malice on the on, on the part of the authors? And and we maintain that it's it's not. It's a deeply embedded and structural problem that moves beyond individual bad actors um, or individual specifics and, and, and try to look at the kind of longer problem here. Some of the discourse that we've seen following this letter are is sort of like 
oh, how could this sort of thing happen? Like, clearly this is wrong. Um, <laughs> the institution of computer science or whatever has failed us. And I, I, I think that's something that we really tried to head off in the letter that maybe didn't quite come through. Um, people are, are sort of taking this notion of like garbage in, garbage out, and expanding it a little bit. Uh, but but we can't really solve these sorts of problems with with more data or better data or like individualized fairness metrics because ultimately it's it's not the data or the algorithm that is ultimately rotten it's it's the entire criminal justice system that is founded on these these racist ideas of criminality and and the valuation of property over the valuation of people and human lives specifically property owned by white people. Getting back to this this letter specifically that um, both of you contributed to and wrote for Springer, just to kind of like briefly summarize for the listeners in case anybody's having a hard time keeping or following along here. So we have this uh, article that Springer publishes that is about how it's an AI model that can predict criminality by faces. And that is a way of basically saying that criminality is something that can be a biological trait within humans, which is a hugely racist claim. And so as the coalition, you all come together and you write this letter to Springer that now has 2,435 signatures backing it. So what were the goals of this letter? What were you all hoping to get out of writing this letter and sending it to Springer? Yeah, thanks. Um, good question. I will, I will start by, um, I can hear people criticizing on Twitter already. Um, Springer had not officially published. It was a it was a press release on a specific university's website saying that it would be published. And um, so I just want to make that clear for the people who will defend Springer until the day that they die. But um, I'd say that the goal of, of this letter was an attempt to start to dismantle the power structures and, and resist the complicity within them uh, by undertaking a, a sort of very specific directed intervention in in this cycle that Sonia and I both sort of mentioned, um, and and you can re read a little bit more about it on our on our website for critical tech uh, for anybody who wants to check it out. We asked Springer three kind of main uh, we made three main requests and none of them have been have been fully met yet so we asked that springer refrain from publishing this piece which they quickly um sort of quickly but vaguely uh, agreed to just on twitter um we, we asked that they refrain from publishing this article and to explain publicly why um which has not happened we also asked that springer should publicly acknowledge their role in kind of propping up and, and circulating these kinds of claims um, and, and this debunked pseudoscience. And we ask that publishers in general refrain from publishing this, this work that is extremely problematic, right? Like it, it, this kind of work legitimizes and perpetuates real world harm um, and with severe consequences. We saw a recent case of a, of a wrongful arrest um, using certain kind, like 
this is a matter of life and death for vulnerable populations. Um, and so it's, it has to be considered according to very rigorous and, and high stakes evaluation metrics. And I'm curious about what responses you got originally to uh, that open letter, because as Jess said, uh, you know, you have thousands of, of people who have signed on to it. Um, but I am curious about maybe the opposite side as well. Like, did, did you get a fair amount of pushback? Did Springer respond? Um, and then what was kind of like, uh, what, what is the state of it now? Generally speaking, we were very blown away by how positive the the reactions were. Um, we had very few people who were defending it, which maybe it just didn't get picked up by the right um, alt right media or whatever. But um, most of most of the most of the negative discourse, I would say, was around, was just misconstruing it as a single bad apple study or whatever. Um, and and we, we, tried, we tried not to engage with that sort of logic there um, because ultimately, ultimately we can go miles and miles down into that rabbit hole and, and really get nowhere, but uh, some of some of the other some of the other responses that we saw were a lot of, for instance, like senior academics, particularly or or people high up in industry, might have been hesitant to sign their name on because they hadn't seen the letter, or because um, they thought that possibly the claims could be valid under certain circumstances, and. And quite, quite honestly, uh, that was pretty disappointing to see, to see people um, still sort of latching on to this techno-optimist kind of perspective um, without really understanding how deeply rooted th these problems actually are. Um, large, largely those, largely though that blowback came from computer scientists. And and same same with the the bad apples study, um, of the folks who ultimately responded to the letter, it was it was a pretty mixed bag. A lot of as you might imagine, the the radical folks in in like quote unquote ethics of AI. We saw a lot of people signing on from sociology, anthropology, history, and and a lot of law scholars as well. Um, and then of course tech workers and, and journalists who cover tech, who might not necessarily be in the academy, but are certainly adjacent, uh, as well as some prominent machine learning researchers, uh, some of whom have pretty problematic histories of their own. I would say the, the most surprising and, and kind of heartening response was uh, we saw at least one person who had written, who'd done work like this in the past and, and didn't actually understand in the moment why this was why this was problematic and why uh, what sort of narrative that work sort of fits into, but they they sort of repented, um, which was which was really interesting and I think a an indication that we had done something right that we had built this sort of. You know, one of the, one of the things that we're trying to do is build a coalition across disciplines and across you know industry and academia, and seeing somebody who had 
benefited from this type of work come out and say, yeah, I messed up. This is, this is actually really problematic and I have, I've contributed to it. That was really powerful. And ultimately, um, you know, if, if that's the only thing that we accomplish that we, you know, shake a few people out of that, out of that cycle of, of just perpetuating it, then I'd say that the letter was in some regards a success. And this letter is kind of symbolic of the start of a movement. At least this is something we've all spoken offline about before. And so let's kind of dive into the, what this letter symbolizes and represents and what it's hopefully leading us and also the coalition towards. And it's this notion of uh, academia facilitating oppressive technology, right? So what is that what is what does that actually mean and how is that being enacted in today's day and age i i think academia like any any other side of work i know it's uncommon for some people to think of academics as workers but we are <laughs> and we have obligations to our communities um you know academia participates in this in this kind of like co-production of race and technology and there are ample fields my own included where tech fixes for social problems are not only common practice, but they're really venerated and seen as innovative and, and socially benevolent, right? And look, in, in many areas they can be, um, but that's precisely why we need to keep asking how the technology will be used and, and what assumptions are required for it to work. Um, you know, it, your point about oppressive technology, I think it really thrives under this veneer of, of objectivity or neutrality um, and under a lack of reflexivity and i think there's definitely clear incentives for for building and supporting these kinds of claims using technology um you know tech is like this affordable and efficient way to do policing and surveillance work uh, and we see this in so many examples you know companies like palantir who've built some of the most insidious and and sort of opaque mass surveillance tools offer up their services to government for free. Um, and, and we're seeing this in Canada and globally with facial recognition systems and, and moratoriums on their use. Um, and, and so that's a huge part of the kind of tech lash that you're describing um, right now. I think to, to, to answer the other question about what, what does it maybe symbolize, um, I think that this kind of veneer of tech solutionism is beginning to crack or rather we're seeing pockets of, of ruptures um, and it's really led by community organizations you know here i'm thinking of the work of data for black lives our data bodies the the carceral tech um, technology resistance network and and a lot of it has coalesced specifically around facial recognition and, and surveillance, um, and you know fantastic work work there by the Detroit Community Technology Project, Algorithmic Justice League, um, Fight for the Future, and, and others. So I think it symbolizes attempts to strengthen um, academic and, and tech worker alliances as well, and and hopefully that's something that continues to grow. We kind of joke about like 2020 being the the year of open letters. Audrey, do you want to... Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is something that we've seen a lot, right? You know, um, there was that ma the group of mathematicians who had sort of come together to make 
a similar statement. Um, of course, we saw that garbage Harper's letter. Um, and, and we recognize that open letters are certainly not going to change the world, right? Um, anybody who, who thinks that is, is deluding themselves. Um, but, but we think that it represents a, a sort of, um, it's indicative of these organic clusters of institutional and, and extra institutional mobilizing sort of pop up here and there. Um, Sonia called them ruptures, and I think that uh, I think that's really appropriate to say. Um, we we think that capitalizing on on this on this sort of energy that people are feeling is a potential vector for building uh, what we're calling infrastructures of resistance, uh, which is something that we're that we're working on right now through our coalition in in trying to to build a stronger resistance network to to combat this morally reprehensible technologies. We hear that a lot in our interviews with folks about there's there's something different happening right now. Um, like there's some people are seeing these systems in a different way. Um, part of that is there's more social scientists being involved in the conversation. Part of that is just uh, things that have happened in our world, the murder of the murder of George Floyd um, and beyond, you know, everything that's been going on in our world. Um, and there's still this question of, of the how, right? So we're, we are angry, we are frustrated, and there are a lot of folks out there who are looking to do something. Um, and it sounds like you all are kind of on to a particular way of, of doing something. And I wonder if you could say more about what it looks like, uh, you know, in a day-to-day way of how you build those infrastructures of uh, resistance or, or pockets of resistance uh, towards creating justice and equity in these systems that are just so immense and complex. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question, right? Like, how do we do this? Um, it's, it's really hard. And Audre Lorde talked about how hard it is to um, dismantle power structures using tools within those power structures. She talked about this back in the 80s. Um, I, I think the answer is, is really different for each of those groups, and I'll sort of address each of those and then talk about how, how we sort of fit in there. Um, so within the academy, for instance, individual students or, or individual workers have almost zero power, right? Um, because a lot of academia views students as customers, and uh, staff, staff, is, staff and faculty are really workers, employees for the university, um, including grad students, I will say. Um, so ultimately, each of us collectively have this enormous power to resist this sort of work. Um, in a lot of ways, students and uh, grad students, undergrads, uh, faculty members and and uh, staff members can gain a lot by emulating worker unions. Uh, something that we're starting to see a lot happening in, for instance, like tech workers. The Tech Workers Coalition um, strikes me as as one in particular. Um, I I was involved in in some work like this, a grassroots effort at my at my school, Rensselaer, to do this kind of organizing, and I've seen it I've seen it do a lot of good. Um, of, or, of mobilizing students around a single cause or a series of causes that ultimately impact each of us in different ways. 
but I'll, I'll say that educators and other academics play a role here. So they, they shape the discourse in these spaces. They, you know, you hear in politics a lot of like the Overton window, and I think I'll draw on that a little bit um, by by having different conversations and asking different questions in our classrooms and in, in our labs, we have the power to um, to make our politics explicit in pedagogy. Because no matter what we're doing, we're doing political work, right? I mean, the the insistence that we're not doing political work is in fact political, right? You know, you're maintaining the status quo here. Um, but by being explicit and saying no, this is this is how this is how the work that we're doing is political, and this is the work that this is the sort of political work that we are doing. Um, I think I think that we can really sh shape how students and how researchers view view their work in from a social perspective. Um, ways that we are trying to do this sort of individually and as a coalition is by by drawing on work done by community activists and and by folks from all sorts of different like radical um, philosophical and political ideologies to to sort of bring into our spaces because um, as as I said earlier it's not as if these spaces aren't political whatsoever right um, computer science is very deeply political, and and by by shifting how we relate to each other, how we relate to our work, and how we relate to those who ultimately downstream are 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 reacting to it and and being affected by it, we can we can actually do some work here. Um, it, it it certainly doesn't stop at like intellectualizing and and doing research or, or reading certainly um, there's there's no there's no substitute for more direct engagement or or on the ground mobilizing and and sort of deferring to people who like our elders in this space who have been working on this type of these these types of struggles for years um, but I, I think one thing that we're trying to bring to this and, and that we're seeing more and more is people allowing allowing activism into the academy and letting the academy prop up activism. And I think that's ultimately what what we can do collectively that would be most effective to lend support to to these struggles that have been going on for centuries. Yeah, I think I think that's incredibly important. I think uh, interdisciplinarity, um, you know, cross-disciplinary work, you know, interdisciplinary work is or interdisciplinarity is a term that gets thrown a lot around a lot in academia, but it's it's so critical and crucial for AI. Um, you know, one of the projects we do at the like, for instance, I'm just thinking one of the projects we have at the Center for for Media Technology and Democracy. At McGill, we really try and do this work, and it's tough, right? Like, uh, we have a project called Tech Informed Policy, and we do these tech informed policy briefs. And just working with computer, like writing collaboratively with computer scientists and machine learning students, you realize quickly how limiting speaking different kind of disciplinary languages is. Um, and if if we think of, you know, 
the definition of radical as be, as kind of excavating these unlikely connections um, than the tough work of, of cross-disciplinarity that is reflexive and, and care-focused um, is radical work. And I think the possibility for that is is can be found everywhere. Um, and I, th- I think too, just sort of working to demystify AI um, and, and just kind of grounding it in its historical context is, is important. Um, you know, especially if we understand AI as a, as a kind of particular affordance of power. Um, sure, the scale and, and kind of the monopoly of, of big tech is, is revolutionary, um, but it's not historically unprecedented. And I, I think that's important. I, I want to uh, sort of riff off that for a moment. Um, Sonia mentioned that interdisciplinarity is hard, and I think that bears repeating. It's it's not just hard from the perspective of uh, sociologists and humanists, for for computer scientists who find ourselves at this at the border between computer science and humanistic inquiry. It's really difficult, and I've I've talked about this on on Twitter and more recently at 4Us, um, that that ultimately it can be really traumatizing to to try to do this work because it's it, it's not it's not an individualistic that you can't have an individualistic solution to a structural problem, and. And as much as we would like to intervene as, as much as we can, and I think we should, um, it's, it's something that ultimately we collectively need to address. And so I'm, I'm thinking about particularly uh, very precarious, um, very precarious workers here. So like grad student workers, uh, black, indigenous, people of color, uh, women, queer, trans folks, intersections of that precarity make it very difficult to do this um, make it very difficult to do this interdisciplinary work um, especially when the entire structure is designed to cordon off disciplines into different schools into different buildings into different campuses and and often totally different institutions I think that's something that we need to grapple with and that's something that faculty members and advisors need to need to take a lot of work to to sort of ameliorate um, educators have a lot of power here and they need to support us in trying to do that work so you've both said the million dollar word uh, at different points here you've both said radical you've said you know power uprooting systems of oppression Sonia you had kind of a brief description of or definition of radical from your perspective too so um, Sonia could you uh, just quickly define how you view the word radical as it relates to AI technology and then maybe explain a bit uh, as to whether or not you think that the coalition's work fits within that definition you know Audrey defined it um it defined radical as this kind of fundamental reimagining um and and i'll let her expand on that a little bit but i think that's so key here um it reminds me of of rua benjamin who who you've had on the show and whose work is so fantastic 
Um, you know, she talks about imagination as a contested field of action, right? And I think about that a lot. Um, I think about how the most precarious groups in our society, you know, don't have this luxury of reimagining futures. And, um, you know, Rua talks about uh, how m many of us live in, in other people's imaginations, right? So I think, I think for me, the term radical really evades kind of a fixed definition. I think of it more as like a process or a verb. Um, I would define it as shoring up or finding unlikely connections. Um, and by that definition, I think the coalition's work um, is radical, although um, I'm not sure if everyone if, if everyone would, uh, would find it as such. Yeah, uh, um, so, Sonia, Sonia mentioned um, radical, my definition of radical here being a sort of like fundamental reimagining of our constructed reality, because it is constructed, um, based on critical inquiry, um, both internal and external. And so <laughs> I think that the word radical does a lot of work here in a lot of different contexts, right? And it, it serves different purposes, and it, it lends power in some spaces and removes power in other spaces. And I think we need to acknowledge that. Um, I also think that it's it, in spaces where it is powerful, it is likely or, or liable at least to be co-opted. And, and in spaces where it's, where it's not uh, powerful, where it's actually like a, a problematic, it is we'll see it being weaponized to um, sort of blur the lines between different types of engagements. And, you know, we can, we can debate over who is radical and who is not, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would call me radical. I'm thinking of a lot of people in computer science, but also a lot of people probably would not call us or our, our work radical. Um, you know, an insurrectionary anarchist would certainly not call what we do radical. Um, and I think, to Sonia's point, it is something that we are that we are doing. We are doing this this reimagining, this critical inquiry, and and in context that can be the sort of the sort of work that we're doing, writing and coalition building. But um, you know, we're we're seeing it we're seeing it on the ground. We're seeing it. Um, in people who are resisting police brutality, we're seeing it in people who are resisting capitalistic social relations, we're seeing it in people who are resisting colonialism. And so I think, I think any just conception of, ra of radical or radicalism needs to acknowledge the, 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 the deep history of the term and of radical thought and action, while also recognizing that it it really does mean and do different things in different places. As we move towards closing, I was wondering if you both would be willing uh, to share both final thoughts that you may have and also your vision for the coalition going forward. Uh, maybe, you know, in like five years, what, what are your like grandest aspirations for where this uh, coalition can go?
I think that the the most important thing that I drew out of this entire process of writing the letter and forming the coalition is that our work is never done. Our, our, our work is the process. It's the process of taking care of each other. It's the process of, of doing justice and, and acting in ethical ways towards, towards the connections and the relationships that we have. And I'm, I'm drawing on a very specific, like sort of philosophical thought here of like, of building relationships and, and, and gaining, gaining sort of like freedom and, and power through our connections, our ability to affect other people and be affected by other people. Um, and sort of to that end, I think a success, if, you know, five years down the line, I think a success for the coalition would be a, a, a strong group of people and, you know, group, I, I don't, I don't think that the coalition as an institution or organization is a particularly important thing for me, but, but really the affinity that we are, that we're cultivating among different different people. That's, that's really what our, our next project is focusing on that I'm sure everybody will kind of see later. Um, but to that end, I think that I would love to see um, the ability to support our collaborators, not just in, um, not just in like a caring way, the way that we, I think, do right now, but also um, materially support our collaborators. Um, I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't tell you how much work the letter was. I think all of us were treating it as a 20 hour a week job for five weeks. And that's certainly not sustainable. But if if we can ultimately support our collaborators through grants or through fellowships or, or what have you, I think that would be really powerful. Um, sort of disengaging ourselves from the institution um, <laughs> while still relying on the institution of, you know, the industrial academic um, apparatus, I suppose. But uh, really, like, building, building solidarity among different people and, and being able to build a sort of autonomy in, in this way. That's what I would call a success in five years. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great, that's a great definition. Um... Maybe just closing closing thoughts. I think at the end of the day, we need to kind of collectively reclaim the problems that AI and other tech is like marketed to solve. And so many scholars and so many um, you know folks in this space, and, and so many folks who you've had on the show have demonstrated repeatedly how attempts to you know eliminate race or discrimination actually perpetuate racism and and cause real world harm. So. I think reclaiming those problems um, is, is a powerful and radical, dare I say, move. And for folks who want to be involved with the coalition going forward or who want to find out more about you two as uh, individual researchers, where can folks go to get more information or to connect? So you can always go to forcritical.tech. Um, that's our the very rudimentary web website right now uh, that has links to 
that has information on each of us and it has links to our our work that we've done both this medium post and then also like a pdf if you want to include it in say a syllabus feel free to cite us um and uh you can always email us at coalition for critical technology at gmail.com and we'll be sure to include all of that and more resources in the show notes page. But for now, Audrey, Sonia, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us a bit about your story and the Coalition for Critical Technology. We want to thank Sonia and Audrey again for joining us today for this wonderful conversation. And Jess, let's throw it to you first. What did you think about this conversation? What stood out to you and what do you want to talk about? Well, there's a lot of this conversation that really hit close to home for me, especially Audrey's comments, because both Audrey and I are computer scientists. And so I think that we've been surrounded by similar communities when we've been really interested in ethics, especially. And so this is something that I talked about in our uh, recent episode with Anima Anand Kumar and uh, just some of the trials and tribulations of being interested and being an advocate, a public advocate for ethics within the tech community um, and within especially the computer science community as a computer scientist. And so for me, I think one of the one of the comments that Audrey said that really um, stuck out to me was how we as researchers, especially as technical researchers, have this duty and this responsibility to think about the social implications of our research before we begin the research. And so something that I see come up a lot, actually, especially in the computer science um, research community, is that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of potential research that sounds like it could be really interesting. So I'm talking about algorithms that can predict gender from faces. Um, there was an algorithm recently that came out that could predict BMI from uh, images that it pulled from, I think, a, a Weight Watchers uh, data set and um, predicting criminality from people's faces like we saw in the paper from this interview. And these seem like they could be really interesting algorithms to create. And it seems like they could um, solve really interesting problems, but it's much more important to think about the impacts of this work than it is to just dive into creating these algorithms without thinking about the ethical impacts and the consequences on real people through the creation of these technologies. Well, let's, let's stick with that for a second. Like, why do you think that people think these things are good ideas in the first place. So in the case of, uh, of this paper, right, this paper that was titled A Deep Neural Network Model to Predict Criminality Using Image Processing, I feel like it's, it's easy on, uh, on our side um, of being able to claim like the ethical high ground uh, where, I mean, I, I feel like it is kind of pretty easy to see the, uh, where this can end up, right, and just how uh, much of a slippery slope this is in terms of reinforcing racial bias and stereotypes um, and already oppressive systems of criminality. But if I take a step back from kind of like what I know around that and I try to put my mind in the place of these people who are writing this paper, like from, from both of our ends as, as like researchers, I think it's important for us to ask like, something seems so obvious to us, why is it not seeming obvious to other people? 
So for you, Jess, why do you think that people do this? Is it just because these are interesting questions? Is it just because like maybe as, as engineers or even as academics, we're just trained to ask interesting questions without thinking about the consequences of our research or of our actions or design choices, or is it something else? I wouldn't even say it's because we're academics. I, I think it's because we're human. <laughs> we're very curious creatures. We're kind of like cats in that way. And, and I think that, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is computer scientists aren't educated, at least not commonly, <laughs> to think about the consequences of the questions that they're asking and the algorithms that they're writing. And this is something I experienced. I mean, I told a little bit of my story in the very first episode that we came out with, but I literally learned in my very first data science class how to scrape the web and pretty much any website from the web that doesn't have an openly accessible API. So even websites that you're not really allowed to scrape. I learned how to do that in my first data science class without any mention of the ethics of doing this. And at the same time, I was lucky because I was taking an, a computer ethics class and I learned at the same time that that's not okay and that I should really watch when I do that, where I do that and the impacts of doing that. But I was lucky that I was in that computer ethics class. And I think a lot of computer scientists don't have both sides of the coin when they are being trained to do what they do as computer scientists. And I don't think this is anyone's fault necessarily. This is just the system that we currently live in. And so I don't think that it is a computer scientist's fault or it makes a computer scientist immoral in any way to ask interesting questions and want to find interesting results. I do the same thing all the time. But I think now we have to ask ourselves, what do we do to educate computer scientists and to change the field of computer science so that we are asking these questions of consequence and risk before even thinking about designing an algorithm? Sure. And, and again, like I, I, um, I generally do like push back a little bit because I do think that what you said at the beginning is, is right on, which is like, although computer scientists, at least right now in our history, may be uniquely positioned to cause particular harm because of the fact that, you know, like 50 engineers in Silicon Valley can impact 2 billion people in a way that was never really the case before um, right now. Uh, I, I do think that it is a uniquely, you know, human problem. It's, it's not just in that computer science space, even if the, there's a particular, I guess, focus for us uh, on that because of this podcast and things like that. But, but I think that in general that question of intentionality and the question of uh, if, you know, what, what, what is the impact of what we do in the world? How, how do our actions impact other people is something that we're not necessarily socialized to uh, think about. I, I think across the board, honestly, and obviously there are some, also some exceptions to that rule. Um, but uh, I know that like empathy isn't like, taught in elementary school, right? It's not like math, science, you know, you do a little bit of algebra and then you do a little bit of empathy work, right? <laughs> I um, wish. There's different things that we prioritize, right, in, the, in that space. Um, but all of this, I think, gets back to the question of this particular case study, which for me is who has the responsibility uh, to shape the narrative around these topics? So, as much as Audrey and Sonia and the coalition uh, were calling into accountability the authors of this article, they were also very much calling into accountability the editors over at Springer. Um, and I think that is just such an important part to, to piece out in the story of 
these are this, like massive systems and there's a lot of people that uh, do actually have agency in the story who we may not always think about as the people <laughs> that need to be held accountable. Um, but really, like it, it's across the board. It's not just the engineers. It's not just the people who are uh, looking to publish these studies, although they need to be held accountable too. It's also the people who are publishing the studies, the people who are sharing the studies, uh, the people who are then making those studies into technology, uh, who are strategizing around them, you know, the HR and PR departments, like we're all culpable to this in a certain degree, especially if we have power or agency in these systems for uh, sharing, um, really sharing any of this <laughs> across the board. Um, and, and I think, again, that's, that's a human problem and it's a problem that we need to look at in a holistic and a macro way. Yeah, well, maybe this is the point in this episode where we now uh, break the fourth wall and we say, you, listener, whoever you are, whatever position you're in, if you are a researcher, if you are a coder, an engineer, if you are sitting on the editorial board of uh, Springer, if you are involved in academia or the tech industry in any way, you are in a position to be asking yourself what the risks are of the questions that you're asking and the technologies you're creating and the potential systems of oppression that you are enabling. So it is up to all of us to figure out where we are uniquely situated to do something about this and to stop sitting still and being quiet. Just before we sign off, I um, listeners probably don't know since they weren't with us when we were right before recording this, uh, but you were showing me this, this uh, set of pictures about um, this island in, in Japan with all these cats. Um, and earlier when you, um, so just like hundred, just picture an island with hundreds of cats. Go look it up. It's great. Um, and, uh, you were, when you were talking earlier about how like curiosity, um, is like a very human thing and we're all kind of like cats, I kind of got that image. Um, and I started <laughs> thinking about like, even if we are a bunch of curious cats, just kind of on this Island that, you know, we call earth or whatever, um, that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't absolve us of our, our culpability, right? Like curiosity is a beautiful thing and creativity is a beautiful thing, but, uh, there needs to be a level of intentionality to that curiosity. Um, anyway, that's my image that I'm bringing out of this. Do you have any thoughts on that image of cats, Jess, and how it might impact our uh, carceral systems? I think you said it all. <laughs> you summed it up. <laughs> For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at radicalai.org. <laughs> you, re you really don't want to engage with the cat I thing, didn't huh? know what to say. I love it. I just, you said it well. <laughs> And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay radical. <laughs> and for those who are curious about this cat island, it is called Ayoshima. That's spelled A-O-S-H-I-M-A. -A. Go look it up. We'll make sure to include it at the very, very end of the show notes because <laughs> it has very little to do with the very serious topic of today's episode. Yeah, but episode. seriously, go look this up if you just want to feel good. <laughs> if, if the world's getting you down, there's a lot of cats on this island. <laughs> <laughs>